Hi, my name is Ryan Duncan Ayala. Hi, my name is Annika Perez Krikorian. Hello, my name is Jacob Santos. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to Affirmative, Affirmative Reaction. Hello, and welcome to Affirmative Reaction, a critical theater pod from a BIPOC theater squad. I'm Ryan Duncan Ayala. I'm Annika Perez Krikorian. And I'm Jacob Santos. And we're back. Season three, episode two. We did it. So as y'all know, this season is all about controversy. And now that we're hitting our classic play uh, for the week, we decided to stretch classic a little bit and do something from the late 80s, a little a little piece that stirred some some thoughts and feelings. So we'll get into that in a second. But first, let's start with hot takes. Uh, hot takes is our segment where we take our hottest, hottest, spiciest, spiciest theater or theater adjacent hot take for the week and present it to the class with no further explanation. And if you would like explanation, that is artistic and emotional labor that we should be compensated for. Our memos are in the show notes, as always. All right, who wants to go first? I guess I'll go. Hot take. We just do theater. Like, that's it. Like, it's not that deep. Um, and, And seeing young theater makers come into the world worried about, like, having to take a doctor's appointment and, like, missing one day of you know, a show or rehearsal or whatever. It just behooves me to say that we just do theater. Like, that's it. There's nothing else to say. And if you want him to say more about it, Venmo him. Jacob, you want to go next? Yes. So my hot take for this week is (sighs) we got to be more specific on what we mean by people of color. Because, like, if I'm looking at a group who's called rising leader of years of color and it kind of looks like i'm looking straight into the sun that's how bright it is i think we've been a little too loosey-goosey with what are we calling people of color right we like we need to have the colorism conversation and that's my hot take for this week wow i will say my old headshot i mean not that i'm not light-skinned it but my old headshot made me look so blindingly white i think it's still my gmail profile picture it's just really that's really bad um anyway my hot take for this week is that a christmas carol should no longer be done professionally in any capacity i don't want to see it i don't want to hear it um unless it's some sort of actual revamp or something you're doing something different with it otherwise i don't want to see it at all sorry we're done we've done it for a hundred years now we can be done with it um, we don't need it. Anyway, I know that's a hot take, and that's why it's my hot take. Venmo me and stay mad. All right. I'm about to Venmo you. I just want you to know. I'm about to Venmo you. All right. Well, with that off that off that scorching that scorching uh, take. Now for something completely different. Let's talk about our play this week, which is none other than M Butterfly by David Henry Huang. Now to Jacob with the weather. He's going to give us our cute plot summary. Okay, you guys, spoiler, disclaimer. I mean disclaimer. Last week, I sat in my feelings a little bit with this summary, and I apologize to everyone who listened to 30% of our show and said, where is the analysis? We are doing better, learning, growing, divest, diversify, all that. So now Jacob will give you a very much shorter summary of M. Butterfly this week. Yes, let's get into the tea of this play. So M. Butterfly, the first act introduces us introduces us to Renee Gallimard? Gallimard. Oh, 
Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. So first act introduces us to Rene Gallimard, a civil servant attached to the French embassy in China. Uh, we find him in a prison, in a French prison, and he is serving a sentence for treason. Bum, bum, bum. And through a series of flashbacks and like conversations he had in the past, he tells us a story about the perfect woman that he loved and lost. So he falls in love with a beautiful Chinese opera, opera singer, Song Liling, and Gallimard is unaware that all female roles in traditional Beijing opera were actually played by men, as women were banned from the stage at the time. So he visits her often and tries to court her behind his wife's back, Helga, and he interprets Song as butterfly. So basically, he likes the the opera and butterfly and when he first meets song she's humming and singing along to this opera so he interprets her as butterfly from the opera and he positions himself as the white man who likes <laughs> butterfly uh and so she represents for him a lot of western stereotypical ideals of chinese woman as being like submissive etc cetera, etc cetera, because that's how butterfly in the opera is presented we also see a lot of scenes of him talking to his other embassy buddies and they're often pretty <laughs> misogynistic and they just talk about like fucking a lot. So there's that. You just get a lot of scenes uh, like that. He's also somewhat of oh, he's not an incel because he has a wife and he do be fucking. But he also talks a lot about how, like he thinks he's not that good looking or women don't really like him like that or he'll never be able to be with song because she's just so beautiful and so perfect. Uh, so there's a lot of that in the first act and then the first act ends with Guillemard returning to France in shame and living alone after his wife Helga finds out about his affair with Song and she divorces him so then we bring us to act two and we find out more about Song and how he is a man and a spy for the Chinese government and he's just pretending to be a woman and being with Renee so he can get information from him about like different things, but mostly it covers like the Vietnam War and information about that. So he coordinates with one of the leaders who works also is working with the government who reminds him that while he's being a spy, he should not forget that China does not like F slurs. So he better not be sucking any quack while he's getting this information about Renee. But Song, he, he does do that. <laughs> and there's a scene where um renee wants to want song to strip and song's cover is almost completely blown but eventually <laughs> renee falls to his knees and he's like sorry i almost made you do that <laughs> but song is like i need a plan he almost caught me i need to stay in my facade so he decides that you know what i'm gonna trick him into thinking i'm pregnant and I'm going to have his baby, so then he'll stay with me. So then Song starts having anal sex with him, so he thinks that he's having, you know. And then Song goes back to um, the person who also, their supervisor, and is like, I need you to get me a child. I need you to find me a Chinese boy that has blonde hair so I can present it to Renee so he thinks this is his child. And that happens, and they are just falling in love. And then Renee gets sent back to France. Song is still in China, but then eventually Song gets banished to France. 
to continue to get information from Renee, from her baby daddy, basically. And so basically Song goes to France, finds Renee. It's been years. They've been separated for a few years. And Renee (laughs) takes her back in and they live together as a couple for 20 years. Eventually, the truth is revealed, though, and Renee is charged with treason because he's been leaking information to a spy. And once he gets charged and, like, goes up in front of a jury, like, the judge is like, didn't you know Song was not a woman, was a man this entire time? And he's like, "Mm, no. (laughs) Like, he is unable to admit that Song is a man. So then in Act 3... Song reveals himself to the audience and he's now dressing in more masculine clothing. He takes off the makeup and is really just like telling the audience the full tea. It was just like, you know what? He, <laughs> you know, I know like <laughs> it's it's very complicated where he just like kind of explains the trickery of it all. And then Renee realizes he never actually loved Song at all, but the idea of Butterfly what she would call Song because he had this fantasy of the opera Madame Butterfly where he thought Song was Butterfly and he was the white band that was courting her. However, he now realizes he is Butterfly and Song was the man. So he ends the show putting on Song's kimono and makeup in his jail cell and he ends up killing himself like Butterfly does in the opera. The end. So now I'm going to give you a little bit of background of the production. So David first read a small article about the scandal of a French diplomat being tried for treason for being in a relationship with a person who turned out to be a Chinese spy who was pretending to be a woman. And this was just like a really small article in like the New York Times or something. And he was really struck by that. Uh, But there wasn't much information. So he kind of decided he was going to make up a story that basically is based off that. And at first, he actually wanted to make it into a musical, but eventually dropped that idea because making a musical would take much longer. And he's not a music writer, so he would need to find someone to collaborate with to be a composer. He was like, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to write a play. So it first premiered at the National Theater in Washington, D.C. in 1988. And the producers of it, one of them being uh, Mr. David Geffen. (laughs) said you know what we love this and we have and we're white and we have money because we're white so we are going to bring this directly to broadway so it opened up on broadway at the eugene o'neill theater on march 20th 1988 it closed after 777 performances in 1990 that production was nominated for six tony awards and it won best play it was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1989. The the play was also adapted into a movie in 1993, directed by David Cronenberg. And then the show eventually came back to Broadway in a revival in 2017. And this was directed by Julie Taymor from The Lion King and Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark fame. (laughs) And David actually came back to do some rewrites. So him and Julie felt... The reveal of Song being a man no longer held much weight. Like most people knew the story by now, so it wasn't as shocking compared to the 80s when uh, very few people knew about the original story. But actually, in fact, that original play drew more curiosity and interest into that original true life story. So that spawned a lot of articles and documentaries about. So like it started off as that true story being like a small clip, like a small paragraph in a newspaper then the play really popularized it and people were just like, oh, we want to know more. So they did the research. And now like a lot of people know the true story as long as along with the play. Yeah. And the play is mostly like made up version of events 
So this new rewrite included more information from the real life story and other rewrites included Song uh, initially presents as male to Renee, only to claim to be physically female, but made to dress up as a man by her parents, which is interesting. And then the show became two acts rather than three. And then in discussions about the play, David has stressed that the character of Song was not written to be transgender, even though he consulted with gender nonconforming people while he was writing the piece. So interesting. And that's the background of M. Butterfly. What a trooper. Thank you so much for that, Jacob. Truly an icon of our generation. Um, but yeah, so that's M Butterfly. It's time for first thoughts, y'all. So without further ado, what did we think about M Butterfly by David Henry Wong? Um, short, also like side note, I think the version we all read was not the 2017 rewrite. We all read the original script, so we cannot really comment <laughs> on how things were changed in 2017. Uh, the 2017 script is harder to find. It's out there. It's it's available for purchase, I think. Anyway, we read the 19 uh the original 1988 script. I think I think it's important for us to have read that one honestly to like get a better idea of what was the original concept versus like the sort of retooling. Um but that's the one we'll be talking about mainly and we can't really speak to having read the how it changes in the 2017 script. First thoughts though, I read M Butterfly uh in college for a costume design class actually. I had to do my costume final on M Butterfly, so I read it a lot. I was very familiar with it. And coming back to it like first I guess first thoughts when I first read it was like, "Oh, interesting an interesting perspective on like what is truly masculine and what is truly feminine that i was like oh yeah that isn't like playing with gender is is interesting and like what and getting to that idea like essence of like what is what is a woman what is a man what is masculine and what's capital m masculine you know and returning to it like it it it's it did feel more stayed like more boring <laughs> I guess like I, I I think it's interesting that this play was so controversial and I do I do have questions there's a lot to, there's a lot to, t to unpack with this play for sure and I do think continuing to program it is a conversation that we will be having but I was like oh yeah some of this like heavy narration theater is just really boring to get through <laughs> And like, it's not necessarily like exciting theater. It's sort of heavy. It's very dense. So I, I think I, I still read it. I still appreciated it as a play. And it's definitely, I would definitely still call it like controversial to program. <laughs> not, not crazy controversial, but it's a choice. But yeah, it just, I, it's, it's pretty, pretty dense, very wordy. So it, it was kind of like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of theory jam packed into this play. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a it's not a gut punch play to me in the same way that something like Slave Play was the first time I read it. But also vastly different decades, different writing styles. Obviously, a stage manager wrote those stage directions because they are chock full of talking about specials and upstage areas and things like that. Yeah, my first reaction to it, I was actually I messaged Ryan like when I was like halfway through it. And I was like, I feel like a topic this juicy should be less boring. <laughs> But like, here's the thing, like once it got to the third act, I feel like that were, was where like a lot of the juicy parts were. And then like the themes of like masculinity and femininity, feminine, you know what I'm saying, came into the discussion. And also just like the discussion of there's like one monologue where song has where it almost seems like she's talking about how the Western world and like Western masculinity and how, how that's affected like perceptions of the East. Also, like there's one part where she was like, you know what? He would have never thought I was a man because like the way Westerners like fetishize and like demasculize China, there's like even men are women too to, to, to Western men. So that was really interesting, but that didn't come 
until you've gone through like so much of Renee being in his jail cell, being like, oh, I'm going to take you back to this thing that happened in the 70s and this thing that happened in the 60s. So like it, it jumps through time a lot. And it's just like him be a narrator for a lot of these things. And the most interesting parts are like him with song and like that dynamic. But we've seen there's so many scenes of him just talking with his buds, talking about fucking some girls and chicks and a bush or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh. But yeah, but th there's interesting ideas here. And I can see like why it was like a big thing when it came out. But I'm just curious. Like, I wish I was an audience member in the 80s experiencing it for the first time because it was just like, oh, that's so interesting that like those audience members were shocked by the quote unquote twist when like me, when I learned about this play in like theater history class in college, it was just like, that was the thing they told you about. So there was no, there was no shock and there was no surprise. So it's interesting to see how like that part of the story kind of went away until like 2017 when even David himself was like, yeah, there is no shock anymore. So, you know, interesting stuff to unpack. Yeah. Like Hanukkah and Jacob, I actually first started reading this play at the New Haven Union Station in like 2019 and just stopped reading it because I wasn't super interested. And I got back to it and I think it's actually fascinating but I think the style of writing is reflective of the 80s and also just like, I don't think as as enthralling as is necessary to keep me engaged super heavily into a play until we get to the last scene when when Renee walks out and performs the final monologue and scene from Madame Butterfly. I thought that was like really cool, actually. I was I was big into that. But yeah, I. I think it really does unearth some really interesting conversations, especially today about like the demasculinization of Eastern Asian men and the way that like specifically America is dealing with China right now in this really weird like Cold War Part Two electric boogaloo type of way. So yeah, I think this play unearths a lot of really, really interesting things. Yeah, I think it just needs a little revitalization. I also like direct address isn't always my shtick when it comes to theater and this play is mostly direct address to be honest with you well listen it unearths some conversations let's have those conversations i think there are two layers that we can really get into in either together separately whatever you want to do but the big themes that are contrasting in this work are the masculine and feminine like what do those mean and also east versus west what is that dynamic and how is it shifting and changing and a lot of this play like is really political it's, it's based in in the shifting ways that uh, america and the eastern countries asia have all sort of changed their relationship with the west so what were the thing what were the things that really struck you about the way that this play sort of hypothesizes masculine versus feminine maybe maybe masculine versus feminine and then east versus west i mean the 1980s misogyny just hops out at you you know like and i know that was a part of the character traits of the diplomats in the in the group renee and friends but yeah i mean like it is just straight up no holds bars toxic masculinity and misogyny and i feel like that was probably pretty normalized when this play was written in a way that like i don't think that part would shock audience members at all but it, hearing it on stage today might shock audience members some and so i think you know we've progressed forward in a large way simultaneously i think that i don't think we're too far off from where we were when this play was written to the point where i don't think most rugged individualism 
style Americans don't still think this way about the masculinity versus femininity argument. What was really interesting to me was, like you said, this this conversation of misogyny and like how the patriarchy, the way it's set up is it, it, it positions women as like naturally submissive and like they're meant to be dominated by men. So like that's like a conversation they're having a lot, like Renee and his friends. Like there's one line where just like, oh, the women will like say no with their mouth, but like they're saying yes with their eyes, things like that, you know, really like rapey <laughs> discussions. But it's interesting when you position that with the relationship between Renee and Song. And they, they often ask, it's like, Renee, did you really not know he wasn't a woman and like he was a man? And it made me like the way I was interpreting it was like, oh, it's natural for him living in the patriarchy. The patriarchy is saying like, oh, it's natural for you to like dominate a woman and you to be dominant over another woman. But it's just like, you can argue that he deep down knew Song was a man. So that makes it interesting because in history, like men dominating other men is like a huge power trip. It's like a huge gain of power. So I'm just like, oh, was Song his most perfect woman, his beautiful butterfly? Because like deep down, he knew being with her was him gaining even more power than like dominating a woman because he was actually deep down dominating another man so it's like that was really interesting too like that that dynamic that was going on was like part of his desire for song was because he was actually a man and like that was part of his this whole idea of dom men dominating like this was him being able to dominate and even get even more power over someone else yeah i think you know a line that i sort of drew out um that really stuck with me is that song says at one point um only a man knows how a woman is supposed to act which for me is like the central thesis of why this play is so thorny, right? Because like, yes, it is straightforwardly misogynist in the way that the whole concept of M. Butterfly is, and like Madame Butterfly, Miss Saigon, that whole, because Miss Saigon is a, for those who, who do not know, Miss Saigon the musical is a musical version of Madame Butterfly. You know, this this cycle of, of very antiquated gender roles in in that in that in that piece specifically are are part of the makeup of this play in terms of the way that we set up people's dynamics but also that like what is masculine and what is feminine is ultimately a performance and what we see as masculine might might not be in a woman quote unquote like there's so there's a whole other character that we didn't really talk about where Gallimard has Renee has a has a secondary affair on top of song um, with this young college student who her name is Renee they have this affair that is very sexually based. And part of what Renee, like Renee the man pushes back against is like, she's so masculine because she's so brash. And she talks about, she's like, should I call it your penis or your cock or your dick? Like, what do you want me to call it? Like, she's very straightforward and very, very enthusiastic and energetic during sex. And it's like kind of the reason that he starts to like lose interest in her is because he's like, she's a bit too masculine, even though she's doing the things that even in today's society are continued or considered, you know, hot girl shit or like, you know, like deeply like being sexy, being, being, you know, a siren. And I guess that that's also plays into the sort of Madonna whore situation that we see women in a lot but to call a whore explicitly like masculine is a really interesting idea like to to say that brash like brash sexual sexuality is actually not feminine but masculine is really interesting so i think yeah the the idea of performing 
masculinity or femininity in either gender felt like it made it more less straightforward to me i guess because song was always playing an angle song's femininity was always a performance and song really is the only female character we see who is truly feminine quote unquote in gallimar's eyes whereas his wife and his mistress are masculine or, you know, sort of off-putting in, in the way that they are. And so if, if femininity in this world is ultimately performance, like what, like, like it's not a thing that's even real? Is it a thing that's even real? Like that was, that was a question that I got into, right? Of like, for Gallimard, femininity is this weird, like sort of submissive, ephemeral thing but it's something that anyone can do because song is not a woman but song is the perfect woman so like like masculinity and femininity are not things you have they're things you do more than anything and i just thought that that was more interesting to me than just a straightforward like men are like this and women are like this because that's the whole antithesis like that's what the play is saying is not true which i think is still very interesting and i will say i think a lot of the conversation surrounding masculinity and femininity in this play has to do with power dynamic in huge ways, just because we described it as like, he gives off big incel vibes, which is very true. But simultaneously, it's like, he gives off, nobody will ever love me. Mm. And nobody respects him as a human being. Nobody respects Renee. And when he finally, there's this like weird sequence where he doesn't like write song back for like eight weeks and steps into his own confidence that like a woman wants him and all of this moment. And then when he like steps into this newfound confidence that like someone desires him and he is now like the hunter and not the prey type vibes, he gets like a promotion at work because they're like, hey, we've noticed that you're like, you're you're manning up. And yeah, I, I think that's like a really interesting thing because we see this like cat and mouse between Song and Gallimard throughout the play as well. So I think along with general ideas of masculinity and femininity and what that means, and along with the idea between Eastern and Western cultures is this like power struggle as to what is what. Song, I think it's Song has a line or it might be, I think it might actually be Gallimar. And he's like, the uglier the man, the more beautiful the woman he wants. Like, the uglier a man gets, the more beautiful he wants his woman to be. And I was like, ooh, that's so true. <laughs> it's always the neckbeards who are like, ugh, 9 out of 10, mid. And I'm like, please, who are you to speak? But that's part of it. That's part of it. I was trying to get, trying to, that power play, I think you're, you're right, the power play is essential to everything about the sexual aspects of this show and like every aspect of the show. But like ultimately like sexual politics and politics politics aren't that different because they're all a power play. And Song is such, was such an interesting character to me because I kept trying to think of like what was his deep motivation for doing all of this for like 20 years. So there, and there was like one point with like him and his supervisor before they sent Song to France to go go back to Renee, where it's just like, oh, well, you were put up in this flat with him. Like he bought you everything that you needed. Like you were living this lush life. So it's like, was it that? Or was it also that combined with like being gay in China was illegal at that time. And like, this was a way for him to be in a homosexual relationship but also in some ways have it justified because like i'm doing it for the good of the country i'm getting this information so like i can suck my little cock and have my rent paid and i'm just gonna live my fabulous little gay life in my kimono and everything's just gonna be good 
like I kept trying to think like what is songs deep motivations for doing this this long job 20 years yeah which they even question within the play being that like they send them to basically like a work camp in the late second act or the early third act they don't quite remember and whoever's in charge of him is like no you still don't like your hands are still soft you've been living this cushy life you have not been doing the work for Mao for the revolution also shout out the Mao to the revolution we'll talk about this later actually I'm curious about like the still imperialist mindset of this show and like their perceptions on communism and things like that even though it's a pretty progressive forward show i just think like being written in the 80s but anyways i was just that was a joke yeah i mean uh songs supervisors also like you're not doing gay shit to get this information are you and songs like no 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 i would never no 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 I, my methods are my own <laughs> the officer's like every time i see you you're in a dress mm this feels a little fruity to me and he's like no 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 no. i promise also side note and we don't need to get into this because none of us read it but like so apparently in the 2017 reworked version there's now a third layer to song where song meets Gallimar as a boy at the opera and essentially song's cover is that he is a man pretending to be a woman pretending to be a man who is pretending to be a woman on stage for the opera so it's like a third level of fuckery with the gender and like the expectations of Renee that just is apparently more true to the actual like story that that historical article that David mentioned, but like just more confounding to me about like what it, then then it is gay then it is gay right then it's fully gay at that point so that's just that's more confusing and Renee definitely reads a little fruity sometimes I'm like hmm. Yeah, picked last for volleyball. That's fruity. But yeah, I I think like <laughs> I think overall it it does feel very much like somehow homosexuality is like addressed is like the whole point of this play but also not addressed at all. I don't know. I like I feel like people talk about this as like a play about gender and sexuality, but there's times when I'm like I don't know if this is about sexuality really because it's mostly just about like power and like gender more than it is about if Renee is or Song are gay. I definitely think Song is the most enigmatic character and continues to be, which is really interesting. And that was, that's one of the, I know everything about Renee. I know what Renee fucking ate for breakfast this morning. Renee talks too much, but like, I like that the unreliable narrator aspect of it gives us a little more hesitancy. I don't know. It's all, it's all very complicated and interesting. I don't know how I feel about that third layer either. Yeah, that's, that's doing too much in my, my eyes but i like that you said like the unreliable narrator though because i i actually screenshotted this line because i i found it so just interesting gallimard uh during the second act kind of briefly adjust like addresses the fact that like something sussy might have been happening um is during like the the strip scene gallimard says Perhaps happiness is so rare that our mind can turn somersaults to protect it in the fact that like, I knew something was up, but I wasn't going to let myself like ruin my own fun, which thinking back and putting my mind into this like 1980s perspective of it, where it was a big reveal um, when the third act happened. I think that's a really interesting like 
allusion to what's about to happen. And I think you're right. It it makes the narrator just like, this is the problem. I was like, I don't like narration. And now I'm like, this is so interesting. So here we are. Well, I think we can move into more of a conversation about the East versus West aspect of it all. The the amount of times this play says Oriental. Woo! Woo! Far too much. It's but I think it is a good it is a good distinction. I mean, there's an afterword that I read where David was like, I want I want to be clear that I'm using the word Oriental to specifically denote when we're talking about someone with like outdated or like old fashioned ideas of what the East is. And that's a lot of people in this play. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the political and sort of cultural aspects of this play um, that that are being discussed. It's super interesting because with so much with in terms of like the West versus the East, the, so much of what regular, regular Western people know of the East comes from media. And a lot of our perception of East Asian people is like what we see in movies, television, what you see in plays, what you hear in operas, what you read in books. So it's 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 no wonder that like all of these Western men have these such outdated ideas of the people around them. But it's so interesting, like once like these Frenchmen were living in China and working in China for, you know, not an insignificant amount of time, like they were there for a bit. And even like living among the people and seeing how they actually live, they still deeply held onto these outdated and just incorrect and fabricated ideas of Chinese women and Chinese men and Chinese people, which is, <laughs> it's just so it's just wild to see like how much of like media we grow up with shapes our ideas of other people. And even when you're experiencing said other people, you can't break through that facade that you were taught and see the actual human being for who they are. So it just it just reminded me like the importance of like representation and accurate storytelling. Cause like once that fake story gets a hold of you, like it's hard to let go. And it's and it also mirrors like the relationship between Song and Renee. Like Renee really, you know, bought the story that Song was selling. And like Song said, like, I'm an actor. <laughs> I have an Academy Award and trickery like you are going to believe this pussy is good <laughs> okay so it's just like renee really believed that story and once the truth was literally right there in front of him he was like mm, nah so just just the importance of storytelling and the way it works within this play is just really really interesting yeah, and I think it's important to note also that the reason why this is in our controversial season, at least from my understanding, is because of its relationship to Madame Butterfly and to, you know, subsequently Miss Saigon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which especially in the past like five years have become incredibly controversial because of this like absolutely horrible portrayal of East Asian women that are that happen in these pieces of media. So Jacob's hitting like the nail on the head here because we as an audience and Renee as an audience are fed the same thing and come up with the same mindset because of it a lot of the times. But like I said earlier, I think there's also this like really big 2021 issue of China being the new Russia in America's eyes that I think adds an extra like really interesting like geopolitical layer to the conversation that's being had. Because I don't know about you all, but I low-key would always forget that Renee was French and not American just because John Lithgow, but also just because it's not like explicit in a lot of places that 
he's French is just like, oh, like, yeah, that's just a fact of the play. And it doesn't like come up often that he's French, which I don't know how it would in like a non weird way. But yeah, I think the relationship to what Americans in 2021 think of the Western world and think of the Eastern world, quote unquote, makes this play a really interesting one to do in 2021. But that's a you know, an answer for later. Yeah. And I, and it's interesting like this, I know, I don't know, in my brain, I'm still like 88's not that far away, but honestly, like reading it, I was like, oh yeah, there used to be a very different perception of China than there is right now. Like now China is very much like a sort of stronghold of the world. Yeah. Very much like Russia is right. But we think of like the American perception of China is very much like they're big and powerful, but they're also like, you know, they're greedy and, they're all these sorts of things and they're not they're not like us we're cool communism like it's when they kept being like yeah like old people and chickens i was like that's not what i think of when i think of china and i was like oh wait this play is now 40 almost 40 years old and the the switch that happens within this play is is very is very different um and i don't i don't know that that many younger college age students reading this play would actually fully understand that history anymore. I think there would need to be a bigger conversation about like about the revolution <laughs> um, and about Chairman Mao because uh, I don't I don't know that that's like baseline China knowledge anymore, which is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how like this play has turned from or like how this relationship has turned from like chickens and old people to like the most technologically advanced, you know, country. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's like so much context that has to be laid down for like new audience members and for younger audience members of this that I hadn't considered um, in, in a big way. And then we get to like the politics of art within the show, which I want to read this line that we included in our notes. Art for the masses is a shitty excuse to keep artists poor. Really just hit different, like so different. But I also think that part of it was and hear me out here like that same like imperialist standpoint that i was talking about a little bit earlier that like i mean all of america and most of the western world was brainwashed into this like red scare mentality especially in the 80s where i think that's where it comes from i think like that's where that line specifically comes from from like an anti-communism standpoint in a way even though like I still have my feeling about how art is made in America in 2021. I think that's where that line specifically comes from. And I think it's interesting to sneak things like that in there to really feed this like red scare mentality that's in the show. And also, and again, it is different contexts, but still relevant. The way that art needs to be apolitical, according to this, like according to, you know, the that French, the whoever, whatever French guy, there's a guy in the show that says, oh, you should keep politics out of art. I think I think about the 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 Peking opera. But it's like, oh, interesting. Some sort of, you know, and that's like a that person that character in the show is very sus, like very much like old antiquated like thinking. So it's like, oh, interesting that we're still having these conversations of like, ugh, art would keep your keep your Black Lives Matter politics out of art. Like, can't we just make good art? Like, why can't art, why does art have to be, everything have to be political in the theater? I'm like, I know it's a completely different context. And again, it is sort of more of a red scare, like communism pushing agenda context in this play. But I was like, hmm, interesting. Art needs to be apolitical. 
for whoever for whoever whatever side of politics it's on art should art should be a political interesting take interesting what do you consider political do you consider culture political do you consider gender political why are they political when they are just facts of life anyway that's a whole other can of worms but yeah that the the connection between politics and art in this play and there's like it's like sort of a third thread that sort of runs through the play about like what what is the line is there a line do we need to draw a line what are what are the rules for these this sort of unholy union yeah i thought it was really interesting how i mean in the first two seconds of song and renee meeting uh song is like fuck out of here white man and like that doesn't go away throughout the play, even with them falling in love with each other, things like that. Song always refers to him as like white man. And also Song immediately is like, no, I hate Madam Butterfly because, and then lays out the reasons why Madam Butterfly suck. And then Renee is like, oh, but I love that because it serves me. I love that. And I think that's a really interesting way that we still look at art today um, in a big, big way. And maybe why some people still like really enjoy Miss Saigon, you know? That's what it was actually, is that the the keep politics out of art line was about uh, Madame Butterfly and how and how uh, Gallimar was talking to his colleague about like, oh, Song doesn't like Madame Butterfly because of the the story. And the colleague's like, oh, well, who cares about the story? Like, can't we just appreciate good music? Like, why does it need to be political? And I was like, ah, interesting that we're having this conversation about divorcing music and lyrics once again. (laughs) At Ryan Duncan Ayala. I knew this was about to happen as soon as you remembered. And then I remembered. I was like, oh, I felt called out by this moment. I remember this. Um, Because I think all art is inherently political. However, I do think that there are some bangers out there that politically just don't line up with me. But asterisks, but he said, but not Oliver. Oliver doesn't count. (laughs) As long as he needs me doesn't count. As long as he needs me doesn't count. It is what it is. You both bring up an interesting conversation about, you know, how like some folks will just lean they will not move away from their delusion and they'll still like stay with problematic stuff or consume problematic things and it's interesting how the play just like renee is on trial for to face the truth and unpacking their desires it almost feels like the west and like whiteness is also putting being put on trial to like face its truth and its desires and like the same way where like renee just did not want to believe the truth that like they he had an idea of something that wasn't true. It's just like the West simply does not want to believe the truth that like the East isn't what it thinks it is. <laughs> and it's just like, it would be more willing to fully embody its idea and its desires and like go to its deathbed rather than like accept the truth, which is interesting. Cause like, that's what happens with Renee. He fully is just like, you know what? I am not leaving Miss Butterfly. So I will become her and then kill myself. So it's really interesting. Like we're seeing that happen with the character, but we're also being, David's also challenging the West and also putting Western ideas on trial as well. Yeah, I think the the final flip, right? The final realization that, no, I, I, I was butterfly the whole time because I was tricked by a man into like loving him is, is definitely the most like interesting part of the play. I agree with Ryan. Like that is still the part where I was like, ooh, 
ooh, spicy. What a spicy little turn of events in the very, in the literal last two pages. Even though we kind of always see it coming in a way, like there's there's sort of that aspect of it. But one thing I do want to f like footnote, and we don't have to talk about this too much. I know we we should probably move on soon to our final thoughts. But one thing I do want to footnote about this play is there's still there's still an aspect that we didn't also talk about with like gender of like the possible transness of this play and the idea that even subliminally even if it's really not like i don't think song is trans like i don't believe that i if anything like song is essentially a drag queen really but like the narrative of cis men being tricked into sexual relationships with men who present as women or that like trans women are still ultimately men pretending to be women or like what it like what is that line I don't know that, there, that there's anything really there, honestly, right now, but it, it was something I thought about. Like, it is still, there's still like a, oh, he tricked me, like, thing with this that still feels icky to me. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's unfounded. Maybe that's my 2021 brain going into overdrive. No, I thought the same way as you, because when I was doing my background research, I wasn't able to do, like, deep research into the folks who, like, wished there was a trans experience or like a like a non-binary or gender non-conforming experience in the show that I was confused about because I'm just like the basis of the show is just like song pretending to be a woman or pretending to be something that they're not and tricking Renee and that's like that's like the crux of the the entire story so I don't know how you bring in a trans experience with like the trans experience is is one of truth is like just being who you are there is no trickery there so and like i it, i didn't get to be able to do deep research into the folks who wish that was there so i can't really comment on what the, 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 the what the desire was but it was it was interesting i was like oh that's interesting that there's some con controversy there with folks wishing there was a trans or gender non-conforming experience in the updated 2017 version when I don't know. It is like you said, it feels like that could have run into problematic territory. Like, you know, 12, 2017, we're, we were starting to become progressive. But that was that's not 2021. We could have ended up in some weird liberal trying to do good, but end up making things even more problematic area. <laughs> yeah, I think the story is definitely served by not going there, you know, in a big way. Um, I think if it went there, then there'd be like three extra layers to unpack and there's already too many layers object like arguably so i i think david did the right thing in not including that as an element of the play because i i just don't i think it would take away from the entire story as a whole yeah yeah i'm not necessarily advocating for it i don't think we need more trans martyrs in in media at all um, I just, I, I made that connection in my brain of like, what we see in media is that ultimately, like any kind of like diverse gender performance or gender, you know, being gender non non-conforming is trickery, right? Like, that's the only thing that I was clocking, not necessarily that that song is trans or like this story needs to be trans, but like having this story as another representation of exploring with gender is trickery to the people you are in relationship with was just something that I I pinged um, and I was like, mm, I don't know that we need more of this. I don't know that we need to keep saying this, even though it is like, and in this case it is true. So it's like, I don't know. It's just a, a thorny, a thorny question. But I, I, 
I will say real quick, while I was reading it, there was like, it got really prickly at some points where I was like, feels like we're toting a very thin line between transphobia and like, not. It, it felt like we were really, and like a little bit of homophobia too, of course. It felt like we were walking a real narrow line at some points, but you know. Yeah, I think ultimately that is all up to, like, we just don't know enough about what Song feels about this performance. Like, we hear Song be like, it was the greatest acting performance of my life. Um, but ultimately, we don't know. Like, if it was acting, why didn't you stay in male dress as much as you could? Because you're a man, but you were a woman for, you know, it's just, it's, it's very complicated. Would want to hear more from song but that's not going to happen because we've already rewritten it once and it just got more confusing so speaking of rewriting and productions of this play i think we can move on to our final question which we have changed we have augmented a little bit this season can and should this play be produced sure we can add that in but also um uh should this play be cancelled should m butterfly by david henry huang be cancelled so I think that this play can be produced and maybe should. I think I think we're toting a line between maybe should, um, which is kind of rare on this show at this point. Um, yeah, I think that there is some really interesting conversations to have in unpacking with you all about like the 2021 Red Scare of it all. Feels like it could be a really relevant conversation to have and also like producing more Asian playwrights. How about that? However... I will say that we chose this play, like I already mentioned, because of the subject matter of the play. Um, I don't think this play, M. Butterfly, should be canceled. I think that all Madame Butterfly adaptations should be canceled. And that's that. Yeah, when I put myself in the plays, like part of this exercise is kind of putting ourselves in the plays of a programmer or an artistic director who has to like decide to program a show or not. And like I was like going back to our conversation about media and the way it influences us. When you think about the American theater canon, when you think about Asian writers and Asian representation, you look on the musical side, like we said, you really got in terms of like popularity and ones that are often talk about it's King and I and Miss Saigon. And then with the straight play side, when you think about Asian writers and Asian representation, really M Butterfly is like, the top one that comes to mind and not many others so when i'm when like me if i was an artistic direct artistic director and me just thinking about bipoc folks and like wanting more asian representation is this play the first thing i'm going to go to probably not i'm probably going to look to read other shows by east asian southeast asian playwrights and see what other stories are out there to be told because like we said the stories that we tell to people are so important because they influence so much of these communities that we don't really get to see in mainstream media. So like I wouldn't cancel M Butterfly, but I definitely like would not program it or at least it wouldn't be like a hard no if it came on my desk and was like, hey, maybe we do this. But just thinking about space and room and opportunities, I just feel like there's other stories to be told. But like Yes, I don't think it in general needs to be canceled because unfortunately there's still a lot of themes and ideas that we still have to work through as Westerners that this 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 play can really bring up and create great conversations. So 
I think in educational settings, like where it, where it is a lot of the times now is a really good place for it. So yeah, it's kind of just like being canceled in terms of being programmed, but not being canceled as in like, we should never touch this play again. Yeah, I think I would agree with Jacob. It's not the first musical, the first musical, good lord. It's not the first play that I'm going to go to when I'm thinking about Asian representation on stage. Mostly because I think of it as sort of a, at this point, a benign piece. I don't know that, like, it has much, like, yes, we could look at it in a new lens, but just its structure, how cumbersome it is, how long, how, like, how much it caters to old ways of making theater. I'm just, like, not super interested in deconstructing the East-West dynamic that way. Maybe I'd program Soft Power instead by David Henry Huang. <laughs> Which is a musical, or a play with a musical, as he likes to call it. Yeah, but I think M. Butterfly just wouldn't be the first one I'd go to anymore. Um, and I think the 2017 revival does kind of, and even with the rewrites, but like it does kind of show its age. You know, the 2017 revival did not get the same, oh, ah, gasps that the 1988 version got. So I think maybe, you know, yeah, it's not that it needs to be, it's not, you shouldn't program it, just I think, why do you need to program it? Like, there's... At this point, there's there's so many other things you can do. <laughs> this is not the one to have that conversation necessarily. And I don't think it needs to be canceled, but I do think it needs to be approached with sensitivity in terms of understanding who's going to be in the room and what kind of conversations you're going to be having. It's, yeah, it's like in the right hands, obviously it can be okay. I don't think it needs to be canceled, but in the wrong hands, it can go wrong very quickly. So yeah, I think I think I'm honestly a little lukewarm about it. I think it's... It's still a good play, and it is still a little spicy, but it's not its not the banger that it once was. You know, I've noticed every time we talk about a show, we also talk about the conversations we have about the show. Like, literally, the like what kind of, at least I know me and Jacob think in, like, a regional theater mindset. Like, at, at a regional theater, what kind of talkbacks, what kind of, like, conversations do you have with your audience about a show? And I think that really influences our final decisions. And I think that's great. And I think we should think about that more often because I don't think that there's a lot of theater companies that think about it. Art for the masses, but let's pay people better. Amen. That's a wrap on episode two of season three. Definitely make sure to come back for season three, episode three. It's going to be a spicy one. I can already feel it. And it's going to be another contemporary play, which I will say thank you once more to Offroot Art. And um, our partnership with them has been so amazing. So if you can take some time or a little bit of money to donate and shout us out, whatever you can to support this. We are so in love with all of these covers that we get every week. And we hope you are too. And don't forget to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. Yes, we are now on Apple Podcasts, which is so exciting, long awaited. Um, but we do need your help uh to get us to get us charting to get us to get us up there with little nas x on the charts yeah like um, we're 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 going up against like 17 npr shows so like bump those numbers up y'all come on but thank you all thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you again next week bye